When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I don't know what most white people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institution. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Welcome back to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts, Katina and Garen. This is part two of the Tuskegee Syphilis Study episode, so if you haven't listened to part one, make sure you go back in your feed and listen to that. In this episode, we continue the unraveling of the study and a lot of the cover-ups that were happening, and then we take a look at the legacy of the study itself, what important findings came from it reforms, the lasting harm, the long history of injustice within healthcare, and then we end the episode talking about the death toll. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. In 1967, we have a second person objecting, is Peter Buxton, who was a venereal disease investigator for the Public Health Service in San Francisco. He objected to the Tuskegee experiment, and he got just a big runaround. He wrote letter after letter, and he was constantly directed to like other groups or departments or people he needed to complain to. He was just given a runaround until after two years in 1969, the CDC started to sort of listen to him. Dr. David Sensor, the director of the CDC, convened a panel in response to his complaints to review the study. But he didn't put any black people or any medical ethicists on the panel. It was just a, a bunch of white men deciding whether this was acceptable or not. So knowledge of the study was wide within the medical community at that point. It's important to note that there were 13 journal articles published about the study at this point. And many of them were under the title, Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Male, at a time when effective medication had been available for 20 years. The studies in the journals referred to the participants as volunteers, so it didn't detail that they had been lied to. But even then, the fact that it didn't raise questions that they were untreated men dying of syphilis. So the CDC panel discussed the study, and most of the panel was sympathetic to it. Dr. Gene Stolman, chairman of the Department of Medicine at the University of Tennessee, was the kind of lone objector. The members of the panel justified and they equivocated. They claimed that penicillin would come with its own risk if it was administered in old age to the men. They decided that most of the men in the study probably would refuse treatment, so why even ask? 
and the panel ultimately voted almost unanimously that the study should continue. Wow. Hmm. And this is where it actually kind of gets even worse. The panel was concerned that there could be a media backlash if the study in its current form was discovered. And so rather than take any action to actually make the study more ethical, they moved to muddy the water in order to make the study look a little bit less bad. And they did that by trying to get some kind of consent. They decided that informed consent, telling the men that they had syphilis and on the risks of what was going on, they said that it was, the men were not educated enough and they wouldn't understand, which is its own form of racism because there's no way that these men couldn't understand a good explanation of what was going on. So they opted instead for surrogate-informed consent, which meant that they were going to go to the Macomb County Medical Society, which was really just a form of gymnastics to justify what they were doing, and they were going to get more white doctors to sign off and give consent on behalf of the men for what was happening. So they actually dealt with the unethical nature of the study by making it even more unethical, by just bringing in a wider circle of white doctors who were complicit and okay with what was happening. Yeah, it just keeps getting it's very like a Breaking Bad situation. Yeah. It just yeah. keeps covering it up. It gets worse and worse when you could have... You could have stepped in the right direction step. and instead you stepped further in the Even, wrong direction. You could have stepped in 10 years later, 20 years later. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it gets exponentially worse. It's not like a linear scale. Yeah. The journal articles that were being published showed that the only real finding that the study ever had, like the only benefit or conclusion the study ever offered, was that the men with untreated syphilis had 20% shorter lifespans than the men who didn't. So the, the journals were publishing the fact that these men really were dying earlier from this untreated syphilis. So they knew that that was happening, and yet they just continued even as the numbers of participants dwindled. And that was something that was not even worth the research to know. Mm-hmm. The like, treatment was available. Let's but- see how long it takes for them to die. Oh, they die, you know, 20 years younger, or twenty, whatever the, the rate was. Mm-hmm. That's not even worth knowing. It's right? like, that'd be like us setting up a study now of how quickly smallpox can kill people. It's like, it's eradicated. It doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> like, why do we, what's the medical benefit of knowing the dangers of a treatable disease? But they were letting men die or really even complicitly killing them, pulling them out of line for a treatment that could have saved their lives. Exactly. For this medical knowledge that really had no real value. And the study was not actually even a good study. They moved men back and forth between the control group and the study group. Men who were in the 200 men in the control group that didn't have syphilis, over time, some of them contracted syphilis and they moved them to the study side. And then some of the men on the study side would get better over time because syphilis, about a third of the time, it goes away. So they moved them to the control group. So it was not even like well-done right. research study. There's really no real value even came from it in that they were doing all this to justify it. So Buxton persisted. For two more years, nothing happened, but he didn't let the matter go. He attended law school. He continually brought the matter up, complaining about the study that was happening He talked to other students and professors about it, and in July 1972, he runs into Edith Lederer, a journalist from the Associated Press, and she decided to break the story. She teamed up with Gene Heller, an investigative reporter, and they dug in, and it only took them like a month to uncover everything. And they were surprised to find that the CDC was just boldly open with the facts. They weren't even hiding it because... 
I guess the the level of complicit everybody was okay everyone was in it. it so it's like well I guess I guess we're all fine with this so it must be fine and then they thought that they were covered by this surrogate informed consent that was just kind of racist gymnastics that they were playing to justify it mm. so the story broke in July 25th 1972 in the Washington Star and when the New York Times reached out to the retired Dr. Heller for comment he said quote there is nothing in the experiment that was unethical or unscientific. And that was true of pretty much all, I think not even qualifying it, of all of the architects of the study continued to defend it and justify it. There was no repentance. Dr. Melvin K. Duvall, whose department oversaw the CDC, he was kind of in charge of cleaning up the mess after the story broke. He said, quote, I am shocked and horrified by the Tuskegee study. Although the study began in 1932, and although the opportunity to bring treatment to the men has long since passed, I am today launching a full investigation into the circumstances surrounding it. You can see in that, even in that answer, he's kind of like, I'm horrified, but also I'm kind of like making excuses. He said, we will make a special effort to determine why the study was allowed to continue past the time when penicillin became an effective drug of choice against the disease. But then he instructed his team shortly thereafter to leak to the press various excuses to muddy the water. And Duvall convened a nine-person panel to investigate, but he tightly controlled the scope of what they were even allowed to look into in order to kind of contain. It was like a PR effort, not a actual repentance. Yeah, damage control. A damage control. So one of the participants in the study, Charlie Pollard, he approached the law offices of Gray C. and Langford, who was the most reputable black attorney in the state of Alabama. Gray had argued multiple cases before the Supreme Court and had defended Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks. And Gray took up the case and began to pressure the government to make it right. The United States government tried to stave off a lawsuit by offering free medical treatment to the remaining participants. Free medical treatment from sure. that point forward. And there was going to be no apology and no cash settlement. Like, that was the government's offer. Hmm. So James Jones... That's like, that's like someone going on a cruise, and the cruise being... They poisoned them with food that was right. poisonous, and then they're like, we'll give you free we'll food the rest you, of the cruise. We'll give you... No, that's like them saying, you know what? You can have free cruises the rest of your life. And it's like, I don't think... Right? I don't think I'd want to go on that a cruise again. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Gosh, that's... Yeah, my wife and I had a a really bad experience with Southwest Airlines and they're not like a, not a sponsor yeah not a podcast. sponsor of the show <laughs> um, and then they're like okay we'll, we'll give you some little travel vouchers to fly with Southwest Airlines and it's yeah. like I don't want to use it yeah <laughs> yes. I know it's kind of funny airlines that you go on it's like actually can you give me a voucher for can you just refund another can you airline? refund my trip that you canceled and then I'm out all this money for the Airbnb Right. Well, anyways, James Jones, who wrote a book on the study and was kind of like a historian of all this, he interviewed many of the early medical staff involved with the study, and he didn't find anyone showing an ounce of contrition or moral reevaluation. Even when it came to light, they didn't believe they were wrong. But they did know they were wrong. If you look back, even as early as 1950, one of them wrote to another in a letter and said, we now know what we can only surmise before, that we have contributed to their ailments and shortened their lives. Talk about knowing. Yeah. In this letter, he's hinting at not just his own knowledge, but we 
now know for sure what we before could surmise. It's like this moment where you accidentally say the quiet part out loud and admit that you all really did know yeah. that you were killing these men all along. Mm. And there's there's no public apology and there's no like moral reevaluation, but you know that they knew. And and you can see that in, in little admissions like this. Yeah. yeah. So Gray, the attorney, sued the federal government for $1.8 billion, which did get their attention. The government strategy when they got this lawsuit was to delay it for as long as possible, which, what an insult to men who are already near to death because of what you've done and what's come to light. And then you delay it. Most of these participants are now in their 80s or 90s and aren't going to live all that much longer. And the government was dragging their feet in the lawsuit. So they delayed it, and Gray was surprised, though, how easily he could find information, the same as the reporters had found a lot of it. The the initial architects of the study didn't even hide what they were doing. They were just open. Their letters and ex- correspondences to one another have a lot of just racist discussion of right. what they were doing because they were racist to the point that they didn't think it was wrong. So after much delay, the government eventually offered a settlement of $10 million dollars compared to the $1.8 billion that they were seeking. So kind of a drop in the bucket, which came out to 30000 for each survivor and 15000 for heirs of the deceased. And ultimately they accepted that because proving a case against the government is a very difficult thing. So we're talking about 40 years of pain and suffering that is valued at $30,000 per life or 15000 if you're dead. Yeah, less than really. Well, which is... Only a drop in the bucket of the money the government had even made. Right. And from then, testing their blood and getting a blood test through it. And the thing about them being walking dead and that being said, like, and the value of the so called research, which was more after the person died. I mean, not that it shouldn't have ever happened in the first place, but then that really the government gets to get off scot free. Yeah. And even the fact that the government didn't really take the blame for it. And, you know, we call it the Tuskegee syphilis study, as if the blame was not, as if it was Tuskegee behind it and not the government. They got away with almost no financial penalty. They ultimately made money off of what happened because of the test that they were able to patent. And then pretty much no... So no no one got in trouble. Yeah, no one got in trouble for what happened. But let's, let's talk about the impact and legacy, though, because yeah. the impact went way beyond, and there was like a ton of harm. Has and what's come. crazy also, before you get to that, is it took modern-day podcast, essentially, in the 70s, an article yeah. to come out. Yeah. And then it was like, oh, man, we got to... Damage control. We got to fix this, you know? Mm-hmm. It was like 40 years. Yeah, so how much longer would it have forget gone Forget the lives I think it's lost. the whole thing of... You've even had this conversation re- recently with a lot of people of... It's like we just want to hear encouraging stories and we don't want to hear actual things that happened. And I think a lot of white people, we distance ourselves from racial stories because, you know, that's not, I didn't, you know, I didn't own slaves back then and I didn't, I didn't do any of that. It's like we distance ourselves from it so much that even hearing an actual story, we don't even want to hear. We, it's like we only want to hear encouraging and probably part of that is our culture, but Man, I wonder why people can't hear a, an actual true story. Like, just a true You don't have anything to do with it. It's just a story that happened in America like this. Most people probably that are listening have nothing to do with this. But you hear it, and I wonder what where your mind and your heart go of like... Because I think a lot of people are like, 
oh, that's so bad. Like, why are we, but that was what, 50 years ago. And we don't do that anymore. That doesn't happen. Why, why talk about these things? And it's almost just like, well, things don't have to be, you can't hear hard things and just lament. You want to hear encouraging things and you want to be happy, but it, there's a place to like learn actual true stories and hurt and be sad that you may not be connected to directly. Well, it's crazy that people want, you know, white people in the same mouth will say, remember the Alamo and for 9-11 to never forget and celebrate the country's independence and a lot of stuff that people weren't alive for, but they'll never forget, even though they don't remember in the first place because they weren't there and don't understand why we need the dignity that black people need the dignity of the stories being told. And that I think the aversion to the stories being told is to be faced with having to admit that there was a problem. And I think that's what white America doesn't want to face. Because if you have too many stories that mobilize, just like with Black Lives Matter, you know, when Trayvon Martin is a one-off, that's one thing. But then when all these other stories uh, start to surface and resurface, then it's like you have to face the reality that maybe there's a problem. But I don't think that white America wants to face that there is a problem because even if they weren't there, even if they didn't do it, they have to acknowledge that they benefit from it. And everybody wants to believe that they pull themselves up by their bootstraps and that we're all equal. And that's just not the case. And that's why critical race theory, they're railing against it because they want to believe the best. And like you said, a story is a story. An account is an account. If something bad happened, it happened. Mm -hmm. I mean, how unloving is it to, on the one hand, blame Black people for having a victim mentality but then to use the force of law to prevent stories of actual Black victimhood from being taught, like true stories where all through our history, Black people were victims. But then there's this accusation of, how unloving is it to tell someone who's a victim that you have a victim mentality? If someone came to you in your life and said like they'd been abused in some way, and then you accuse them of having a victim mentality when they're an actual victim, rather than loving them and helping grieve that and helping them pursue health. And that's what we do in America. Like white people, by and large, and white conservatives, and the polling will show like the more conservative someone is, the more likely they are to say that black people have like a victim mentality or just, you know, entitled and want handouts. Yeah, we kind of talked about racial resentment, the racial yeah. resentment scores are higher. Well, we treat the word victim as if it's a cuss word. And the thing about it, you know, even even people who have been victimized, like rape victims, will say, well, I chose not to be a victim. And we try to champion people who move beyond the experience. But the experience is the experience. It doesn't make you less of a person to have been victimized. It doesn't say that you are, something's wrong, like you were a victim of sexual abuse, you were a victim of assault, you were a victim of this. It doesn't define you, but it is a part of your story and a part of your experience. It's a weird, I don't know, we have a weird way of thinking when it comes to bad things that happen. Yeah, it's almost like the fact that we elevate people who get beyond their victimness shows that at some level, we believe the lie that the shame of being a victim belongs on the victim. Right. 
Because then we're like celebrating when they get that shame off of them. But then we're buying the lie that they deserve to have that weight of shame on them for something they didn't do that happened to them. And the fact that they're then struggling with the aftermath of atrocities committed against them rather than putting the shame on the oppressors or the people who committed the crime. Or the system that... Or the system that enabled it. If you look at Black people historically, we're we're most certainly overcomers. We are most certainly overcomers and we are not victims in the sense that victimhood is, is criminalized. We have continued to persevere. We have continued to overcome. We've continued to create our universities. We've innovated. We've created. I mean, in in my mind, we are the poster children for overcoming. And you think about the story of the Count of Monte Cristo. Everybody likes those stories where people have been brought down to the deepest low, like the lowest low, and then they're victorious. But we don't like that for a whole race of people, a whole culture of people who have a shared and collective experience of 400 years that we continue to overcome. So we've been victimized in in the real sense of the word, but we've also been overcomers. You know, yeah, yeah it, it's done like it's it has basically made this thing within black and brown people this like enormously positive thing. Quality. That quality. And I think what white people are going to realize it's at some point it's going to come to a head with us. Yeah. Of like, hey, this is really bad for us. Like, what is this actually doing to our mental health? What is it doing to us, even financially, what we talked about last episode? Absolutely. It's really bad for us financially. And it's only going to keep getting worse. And I think I just read something that America is going to be a minor majority by 2044. Um, yep. And so, and I know in Texas, white people are already not the majority, but like in America, it's going to come to a head with our children and our children's children of like, oh, wow, this is actually really, really bad for us that we're not even talking about all this while on the other hand black and brown people they're at a level of just like almost an unbelievable quality of how did you guys do this and how are you so nice still and how do you have all these positive things for what has happened to you and i think you could even look at what has happened with black and brown people and what has happened with white people and it just always seems like black and brown people are more happy to whatever degree you think happy is important in your life, but they just seem more joyful than white people overall. And I think there's just correlations that are going to... Well, and more forgiving and more welcoming and more... It's it's so crazy how we are... And I, I believe that's a byproduct of systemic racism is that black people, we have accommodated white people. It's almost like, oh, don't feel bad. Yeah, you did that. But it's like we accommodate, we forgive... We welcome other people into our community. We invite them to the cookout prematurely sometimes, uh, but we invite them to the cookout. We let them make the potato salad. Like, you know, we, we, I think that's a byproduct of, of systemic racism that we, white accommodation. Yeah. And I would say, I mean, directly to the white audience, like if you see in yourself that you love underdog stories, that you love underdog movies, that you love kind of rooting for the small guy in every facet of your life except for this. Then what's the problem? Then then like, what is the, like, what's going on there? If your heart doesn't see and celebrate black people having overcome 
all this history and you don't want to know that story, but then you want to know all these other underdog stories. That's a that's a deep question, man. I think that is a great thing to do, even if you're so pro black and brown people and you love seeing it. I still think like ask yourself that what a that's a deep heart question that's like hard to sit in. Like, what do you actually think about that? Why don't you think about that? Why don't you celebrate that? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And it's so funny that now with the whole critical race theory backlash is like, let's not teach stories that are going to make white kids feel, feel bad. bad. Even though these are things that happened. On the one hand, white people say, oh, this happened 50 years ago and like we didn't do it. But then they're also at the same time almost showing that there is some complicity because then they know that their kids will feel bad if they hear the stories. Yeah. Well, we don't talk about so Bruno. Like, we don't talk about So Bruno it's like, are you connected to it or not? Because you're saying we're too connected to it to teach our kids, but we're not connected to it so we don't share any blame. But, uh, but black yeah, people exactly. participate in that because Condoleezza Rice said that. We are, we're not here to make, we don't want to make white kids feel bad. What about telling the truth? If we're telling the truth, then the truth rightly divides and it stands for itself. You can tell the truth without, why are we even concerned about who, who it makes feel bad if it's the truth? Mm-hmm. And so That's again, exactly. that black yeah. accom- that white accommodation of, well, we don't want to, we just want to teach the truth. There are, there's parts of black history that black people don't even know, you know, because there's been a suppression of history because people don't want to face the reality of what this country has been about. Mm-hmm. It's like, let's skip over all the horrendous and horrible things that this country has done because we don't want to make people feel bad. Mm-hmm. The truth is the truth. So then why not address it instead of let's not teach it? Why not just give kids the credit that we can talk to them about how to think about it, how to confront the fact that these bad things did happen and just teach the kid, hey, if you're feeling bad about this, what do we do with that? Teach them to turn that into a response of like love and empathy and to celebrate moving forward together rather than just, well, we don't want them to feel yeah, uncomfortable. So we're not teach That's it. just so much work. You know? <laughs> right? A little sad that you guys missed out on my Encanto reference there. I, but, uh, I haven't seen Encanto. I, we are planning on watching it tonight. A well, movie for the people I've listening, so, you know, we don't talk about Bruno. Next episode. I'll we need it as a country it. start talking about Bruno. And so. I keep hearing about that. I haven't seen it. Don't guys, spoil it for me. Oh, I'm well, going to watch it so we can talk about Bruno. Yeah. So let's talk about the legacy yes. of this. Because one thing that's commonly believed with the syphilis study is that they that black people were injected, black men were injected with syphilis, which is not the case, but it's still, you know, highly believed. But black people who had syphilis 
or black men who had syphilis, they were just studied and untreated, correct? Yeah, they were prevented from receiving treatment. Right. They were not told that they had syphilis. They were they gave do not treat lists out to local medical establishments. So they prevented them from getting treatment, but they didn't actually infect them. Which is just as bad. Might as I well do have not given treat, it to them. A do not treat list is essentially you're like killing them. Yeah, you're consigning them to... Well, and just think about the women who may have been with these men. In essence, yeah, you were giving people syphilis because you had a treatment that you weren't, mm-hmm. you know, that that you weren't administering. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, so let's get into this. The the one positive that did come from it is that there was reforms in the outcry. The National Research Act passed and banned studies like this one. So today we live in a world where informed consent can be taken for granted in the context of medicine at least, and that is because in 1974, the backlash to the study pushed that through. So that's the one positive, but that's like basically just preventing... It's like that should have been there. It's that like, should have been there. That's not if, even a positive. It's just like, yeah, it's just yeah. like, let's not have more negative. <laughs> right. So the greatest single lasting harm from the study is that the life expectancy of black men fell 1.5 years after the study came out as a result of growth in distrust for the medical establishment. Yep. That black men and black people generally had less trust for medicine and so were less likely to go in to see a doctor and so diseases are getting, getting diagnosed later and later because of a lack of trust for medicine. And that has caused just a growth in the medical disparities between white and black people. Already, white people in many cities live 20 years longer than their black peers. Part of that is because black people go through life with greater anxiety because of fighting oppression, which... Well, hold on. Before you get into all that, it's, I would just want to bring it up again. Like, okay, they live 20 years longer. You, you got to do something with that, right? You can't just... That's not just like a thing. I mean, if it was like one or two, three years, I'm sure there's a plus or minus that's like a wash and it, it, there's nothing to be really... There's a margin of error to the studies, but yeah. 20 years is But 20 years way is outside. pretty big, just like that's most huge. of the disparities yeah. Yeah. in our country. I think you just still have to think, do you just think black people genetically don't live as long? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Which has been proven, no, it's not true. Or there was something in place, which is what you're just about to describe, and I cut you off, but mm. like there are reasons why the 20-year disparity is there. And it's not because black people just so happen to live 20 years less. Mm-hmm. There are other factors than just medicine, because there's also uh, black people are about have about twice as much exposure on average to various forms of pollution, whether like lead piping or like air pollution, because a lot of black neighborhoods in the redlining era were the places where all the pollutants were located. They were zoned industrial so that polluting industries could go in. There's a lack of access to good food that I don't know if you guys know this, but there's been studies that have shown that if you eat processed foods, you take in about 500 more calories a day to feel the same level as full. So they, yeah. they gave different studies and they actually, this, this study was pretty interesting. They got two different groups. They split the group up, gave one group processed foods and one group unprocessed foods. And they said, eat until you're full. They didn't control how much they ate. Found that the one group ate 500 more calories a day. Then they switched the group, the A and B group, and found it flipped. 
Mm. Where the the other group, the group that was eating more is now eating less. So processed foods just don't make your body feel as full, so you eat more of them. And black people oftentimes live disproportionately in neighborhoods that don't have access to good food. Right. And so part of the white response, will they'll look at black people who have diabetes and say like, well, no, there's not a food problem. Look, they're eating plenty of food. But that's actually a sign of poverty, not a sign of like excess. Because the lack of access to good healthy food, food is deserts, like, yeah. grocery stores, not being in black neighborhoods. Yep, and food stamps is just a very inadequate. It, it's not enough money to actually get good healthy food. Right, because um, healthy food costs more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of times it just doesn't even qualify as an option, or it just costs more. So that's part of the. The, the disparity, but then a significant part of the disparity is black mistrust of medicine. And this Tuskegee experiment is a huge part of that, that there was an actual measurable drop of 1.5 years in ex- life expectancy as a result of this study and the growth in distrust as a result of it. Yeah. So writing for The Atlantic, Olga Hassan observed, quote, African-Americans observed the greater risk of death at practically every stage of life. America's racist and segregationist history continues to harm black people in the most intimate of ways, seeping into their lungs, their blood, even their DNA. And black distrust of medicine, this isn't the only study that created that environment. Like we talked about Dr. J. Marion Sims, the father of modern gynecology, he conducted surgeries on enslaved women without anesthesia, like we talked about. Grave robbers regularly used black cemeteries to find cadavers for early medical research, for sterilizations of black people were common at one time. We talked about that in the Fannie Lou Hamer episode, where she went in for a completely unrelated procedure or issue and was sterilized and Mm. never had children of her own. Her and her husband ended up adopting. They also sterilized Hispanic and indigenous women. But Tuskegee added to that damage and passed it through a broad focal lens of institutional indifference. It wasn't just a few bad actors. It was the CDC, the state and local health boards, local physicians, medical journals. It was the whole system. And even today, Even today, there is a discussion about disparities against black women and the perception of their pain levels. If a black woman says that she has pain and how it's perceived in the medical community, they're talking about how black patients, their pain levels are ignored. Anything that they say about their diagnoses is ignored, just like the doctor as Garen pointed out earlier in this, when discussing the study, that they were too ignorant to even discuss their own symptoms. And so that still lives on that Black people, we go into the doctor's office and we say, this is what's going on with us. And a white doctor can say, well, no, that's not what's going on. There are a lot of discussions now that are coming forth, a lot of journals and articles in the medical community about how the neglect of Black people and care and how the medical community, how it's ingrained in their minds on how to treat Black people based on a history of neglect and disparities in our country, how it's just cultural to neglect Black people. You know, we see that in the infant mortality rate. We see that in the maternal mortality rate Mm. with Black women. Yeah, yeah, the maternal mortality rate is what, like three times higher? Yeah, for black women, which is, again, uh, just a 
incredibly large difference. Like we're not talking, you know, just a little shade of racism. Like this right. is a huge, like three times the rate. So then with that, and, and Katina, I want to kind of pose this to you as a question because you work in the medical world yeah, and are an advocate for people getting medical care. And so on the one hand, I empathize with the fact that for black people, the distrust of medicine comes from actual, like a reasonable place because this really did happen. But then on the other hand, we can see that it is shortening, that that distrust is shortening the life expectancy of black men by one and a half years. Because we do have black members in our audience who I even want to speak to on this of like, should we or should we not trust medicine? Should black people trust medicine or not? I think that where we are, because I still see, I've worked in healthcare administration for well over 20 years, I still see the disparities that exist even in my own care and me understanding and knowing and being a part of the medical community how I have to go into doctor's appointments. What needs to happen more than anything is that black people need advocates and black people need representation in medical practices, and in hospitals. Like where I work, Black patients are put at ease when they see me. I have patients that (laughs) they will not, they will go toe-to-toe, and Hispanic patients that will go toe-to-toe with folks about their care. And a lot of it is based out of fear. You can feel it. And then they see me come around the corner and they're like, can I talk to her? And I'm able to resolve an issue within two or three minutes where they've been fighting with, you know, white staff for hours (laughs) or even sometimes days or weeks. Representation matters. Being informed matters. But yeah, there's still a tremendous distrust for people. There's a distrust for black people who work in the medical community because we see it from day to day how it plays out. And it's it's not just, even though it's bad enough that it is against black people and brown people, but there's also ageism, you know, that happens. There's also gender bias that happens. Any element of bias, there's classism that happens. People who have Medicaid or people who have Medicare or policies that don't pay as much. I really feel like the whole system of healthcare in America needs to be abolished. But yes, There is today a lot of distrust. Black people will say things like, I'm not going, you know, the doctor said I need to get this surgery. This is a common thing. The doctor said I need to get this surgery, but I'm done. I'm done letting them cut on me. Letting, I'm done letting them cut on me is such a common phrase in the black community. And you know that that sentence is rooted in the history of why black people should distrust the medical community because I'm not letting them cut on me, even in death. That's why a lot of black people don't get cremated, you know? And I mean, just there's just so many of these stories where they were experimenting on black bodies, even in death, that inform how black people view medicine, how they view even COVID. Even COVID, even though black people, just the horrible things that have been said about the black community getting the vaccine, even though black people, by and large, we do have this, the vaccine and we are the ones that have to jump over most, the most hurdles to even get the vaccine because of the history of treatment. But one politician said that the reason why COVID was thriving was because the black community wasn't getting the vaccine, which is a lie. 
And then when they discovered the Omicron variant in South Africa, the first response from everybody was, we just need to go to Africa and give everybody. It's like Africa's a whole continent. Who are you to think that you can just bounce your raggedy tail over there and just give anybody anything? It's like Africa, the continent of Africa has agency. Thank you, South Africa. Thank you, Africa, for finding the Omicron variant. Thank you, Africa, for not ha- for leading the way and not having as many cases as Amer- like America. Do you think that you can learn something as we've had 800,000 people die? Mm-hmm. As, as quickly as South Africa responded to and identified right. the variant. It's like the fact that there's racism directed towards them rather than praise. Yeah, we just need to go over there and vaccinate all, like, It goes back to the same thing, the same kind of racialized thing we talked about earlier with how diseases are blamed on races rather than it being seen as a collective human effort to to fight it. And it's funny because Omicron was, was found, well, was discovered, you know, by these amazing scientists and doctors in Africa, but you know, America is supposed to be leading the way, but we are. We are leading the way in cases. We're leading the way in how not to respond to a pandemic. It's destroying us. Just even conversations about wearing a mask. We still get people coming into our office acting a fool about wearing a mask, trying to tell us what Governor Abbott said. And I'm like, first of all, Governor Abbott don't pay no bills here. He don't work here. He, his name ain't on no. His name ain't on no bill. He ain't got five on it. You can go talk to Governor Abbott and let him let him treat you, because when you walk in this building, just just the fact that we're still having this conversation when we've had this many casualties. Yeah, and I think we've maybe said this on a previous podcast, maybe we didn't, but states that voted for Trump have fifty percent higher death rate in the last couple Absolutely. months than states that voted for Biden. Which I mean, obviously, that's not coming from who you voted for, but it shows like the culture Absolutely. of masking and vaccine taking the vaccine is like actually resulting in the big picture in a large disparity of in the rate of deaths. I had someone tell me that mask gives them carbon monoxide. Katina, I don't even want to give that comment. <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you. These it's people some, don't want to. Li- and that's from privileged white folks. Hey, one, so one thing that, craziness. that Katina was saying, because it almost seems like, I mean, at least from my perspective, you know, an average white guy, like, it seems like the black perspective towards the health world maybe has increased to like trust in actual science health stuff. But the pro- there's a big problem, too, of just like the people that are still in the system. And a lot of what you were describing is they're still filled with people that have high racial resentment, that have a lot of racial bias. And one of the things, at least from my perspective, what you said was we need more black and brown nurses. We need more black and brown teachers. We need more black and brown doctors. We need to fill everything in the health sector with more black and brown people. And we also need like white people to actually leverage their power and speak up and and say that as well and invite people and not assume like, oh, there's a black person here, so I'm going to talk to them because I know that what they, they want to see a black person. So it's almost like you we really want to solve the problem when it's like you don't, you can't solve the problem. You need to invite, you need to try to advocate for more black and brown people like in your life in general, let alone right. the health world. Mm-hmm. But in the medical community, to your point, there are still those gatekeepers, those gatekeepers that keep black people out, you know, sy- systematically. Yeah. And so 
I mean, when we think about the disparities that exist where black people even getting loans to go because it's going to require loans and that type of thing, or even just the requirements to get into college and how, I mean, small things like how black, well, this isn't small, how black people have to bear their trauma to write these letters, these essays to get accepted into college sometimes, let alone when you're going up into higher education, even further, like getting a, your medical degree or your nursing degree. There's a lot of gatekeeping. Um, yeah. Midwifery is one. Mm-hmm. We talked to Cecily with Abide in Dallas. Midwifery was basically copped by the white establishment and taken from black women who had been serving the local community and they had, been, they had served the enslaved community. And so, yeah, there's a, the gatekeeping is still very much strong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's close with just a final discussion of the toll, the death toll that came from the Tuskegee study. There were at least 27 of the patients that died as a result of the medical neglect mm. and maybe as many as 100 that died of the untreated syphilis. There also, as you kind of hinted at, there's no good way to track or know the exact numbers here, but at a minimum, we know of at least 22 wives, 17 children, and two grandchildren that were infected with syphilis that Mm -hmm. could have been treated if not for the neglect of the study. And those are probably large undercounts because usually, I mean, you think if if one of these grandkids gets syphilis, it's not usually going to be reported and linked back to the study. Right. So there's the direct toll on the participants, but then that larger toll as a result of the medical distrust. And I guess there's a kind of a, a final thought for me is that from what you were saying, it's like the, the, the disparities, the racial disparities in medicine are absolutely real. But at mm. the same time, the black distrust of medicine is measurably exacerbating the problem by causing treatment to come later because black people who don't trust their doctors for even valid reasons then get diagnosed later and that causes worse outcomes. So then there's this weird dual truth at the same time where black people have a valid reason and a logical and real reason not to trust medicine. At the same time, I would urge black listeners that if you have medical questions or if you have like concerns and you're thinking about whether to see a doctor, that there's value to trusting medicine even though it doesn't deserve your trust. And there's a that's an excellent point. And also, I'm just going to give them a couple of books that they can read, our audience. Killing the Black Body, Race, Reproduction, and the Meaning of Liberty by Dorothy Roberts is an excellent book, as well as Medical Apartheid by Harriet A. Washington, A Dark History of Medical Experimentation on Black Americans from Colonial Times to the Present. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you're looking for more information on what we discussed, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. If you'd like to play a supportive role in the podcast, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. On our next episode, we will be discussing Ida B. Wells. We'll leave you with this quote from Arthur Ashe. True heroism is remarkably sober, very undramatic. It's not the urge to surpass all others at whatever cost, but the urge to serve others at whatever cost.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.